Welcome back, everyone, to another episode, another week of A Little More Good. So good to uh, have you join us for this conversation. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name's Dean. What's up, everybody? I'm Zach. And we're back. We are back. Yes, back sir. again. Tell a friend. <laughs> Please do tell a friend. Share this episode with someone near and dear to you. It's so true. tell your friends. Tell all of them. It's true. Honestly, like all of the podcasts that I listen to, our podcast that mostly you have sent me or other people. And they're like, yo, I think you would like dig this guest or, you know, this show is pretty cool. You should check it out. And the ones that I'm like a regular listener to have all been landed in my, you know, inbox or someone DM'd me and said, check this out. Um, so yeah, share it. Word of mouth, classic word of mouth. That's the way to do it. So if you're, if you're digging a little more good, share it with a friend. Throw up a review while you're at it and just, you know, post it up. Five star, four star, three star. You got lots of options there. All there's, the options. There's five stars to choose from. <laughs> Write a review. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. That's right. That's the best way for us to spread the word of goodness is is through uh, through the reviews and and the follows on the Podverse and mm-hmm. sharing with friends. So good. Uh, before we dive into this one, Dean, are there any podcasts that you've been jamming on lately? Any Anything that you've been enjoying in the in the pod world? Oh man, I've actually been going down, uh, not necessarily a podcast like one, but a guest that's been on a few different podcasts. Ooh, juicy. Graham Hancock. Oh, yes. He's like this kind of rebel, uh, Egyptologist, archaeologist that's been shunned because he has like... Um, not controversial, but like contrarian views to like the mainstream narrative of history and, and ask some really good, like kind of thought provoking and provocative questions. Uh, and you know, he's just a really fascinating guy and, uh, he's been on a whole bunch of spectrums of podcasts, kind of like left and right and center and everywhere, but always has like kind of a cool story to share. And, you know, I have had the immense privilege of being able to go to Egypt and see you know the pyramids in Giza and the Sphinx and I just like can remember back being there I'm like man I wish that I like had this kind of understanding and could ask some of these questions now that I like you know ponder so that's he's someone that I've just been like kind of fascinated by and he um I watched his ancient apocalypse on Netflix, Netflix and, yeah, he's uh, that I, show. Could, I couldn't get enough it was like it's it was pretty can- wild it was candy for my brain yeah uh, any like major takeaways or curiosities that uh, he kind of brought forward for you? Well, I mean, the whole, like, I think the main thing, and this could go for anything, it doesn't have to be like uh, ancient civilization, is just like to always be curious and to like ask sometimes obvious questions that have always just been like, oh, no, no, we don't, you know don't ask that or we already know the answer to that. Like, why are you revisiting it? But sometimes like revisiting things or just leading with that curiosity leads you to a place that you may have never anticipated. And I mean, I don't know. Also, I guess like haters going to hate. That's like a lesson, right? Because a lot of people think he's, you know, pseudoscience and he's like a quack or whatever. Like they use things to try and debunk him or personal attacks rather than like, seek out uh, appropriate answers to the questions he's asking or yeah anyway I, I think uh, I don't know I often find myself as like kind of in the in the like lone wolf black sheep kind yeah. of crowd and so maybe I identify with him in that way is 
but yeah, he's cool. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Yeah. I've been kind of on that Egypt thread as well. It's so funny. We're always on the same frequency. Yeah. I've been listening to a lot of uh, Ibrahim Karim and yes. his daughter, Dorea Karim. And they kind of founded this idea of biogeometry that I've, I think I've mentioned a few times, but uh, they're so fascinating. They're definitely high on my wish list of future guests, but uh, they've got some great interviews on uh, Paul Check's Living 4D uh, podcast and uh, friend of the pod, Darren O'Lean's podcast. Uh, Ibrahim Karim was on that one as well. So uh, if you want to get into kind of biogeometry, which is kind of, the energetics of, of shapes and, and power spots with kind of a scientific lens. It's, uh, it's fascinating stuff. Very cool. interesting. So cool. I love the format, like podcasts, these conversations with people that you may have never heard of or never read their work or know they exist. And then, yeah, through following a podcast or seeing a clip on Instagram or whatever it might be, someone sending you a text being like, you should listen to this. It's super interesting. Uh, you get exposed to all these different yeah. like thoughts and people. And some of it is like, nah, I, mean, I don't know, agree, healthy skepticism, whatever. And others of it that you're like, wait, what? Like this is re- reframing maybe how I understood, you know, yeah, geometry or the physics of, of building spaces and sacred places and all of these things. It's yeah, it's, it's awesome. I would say that's my top shared episode. I've sent it to so many people, the Ibrahim Kareem with Doria Kareem on Paul check. I yeah. think I've shared that with more people than any other one, any other uh, podcast episode. There you go. So check it out. I like it. I like it. All right. Uh, well, any other, any other ramblings, wonderings, curiosities before we get into this week's episode? Okay, dude, just today. <laughs> I was watching the uh, the CrossFit Games. It was the it was the last day of it. Oh, nice of the 2023 CrossFit Games, and those people are absolutely incredible. And Canadians did really well. How do we do? The men uh, were one, three, and four. So like huge. Jeff Adler, Canadian guy, won the whole won the whole thing. Fittest they call they call it the fittest man on earth or wow. whatever. Uh, incredible display of just like athleticism, strength coordination determination all of this and then uh the women also uh, incredible turnout um some some young some young stars some young women i think the youngest is she's a canadian too emma was like 19 she's wow. like 19 years old one uh third and just incredible and then two richmond people someone that I we saw, both I know saw sarah perry sarah perry shout out to her didn't she like uh throw down and get some metal she well? got third yeah and the adaptive so she's had an incredible story uh just her own like journey with health and everything and is someone who's legally blind and so competes in the adaptive version and she came third wow which is incredible so took shout the podium to there. sarah perry i know it's so cool and then i was watching the finals and i saw her and her mom like on the on the youtube broadcast i was like yeah i sent her a dm i'm like i saw you but uh yeah so cool man and then a steveston local person lives just around the corner from us emily rolf too she was in the top 20 i think she finished like 14th or 13th wow amazing amazing so lots of like local richmond and local canadian athletes just like throwing down and it's just so so impressive um to see the athleticism and emily rolf she they had a 5k and she a 5k running race? 5k run that was part of the cross that was one of the events oh crazy and she did it in like 17 minutes and something wow it was wild That's she speedy. beat dude she beat every woman and like half of the men wow she crushed the run it was so impressive. Because that's like a like a three forty five pace or something so like that. 
fast. That's wild. I know. So it's incredible. So yeah. and she's a, and she's a Richmond. Yeah, she just lives right here in Season. Wow, dude, amazing. Shout out, shout outs. Yeah, all so, the good people. So inspiring just to watch people who've like again, right, committed to something, worked so hard, and um, you know, this is obviously like the fittest people in the world, so it's on display. But man, it just uh, it's so inspiring to is me. That's something just, you want to do. I don't know. One of these days, maybe. All right, put it on the bucket list. Yeah. <laughs> Get, get into CrossFit. I don't know. There we go. It's never too late. Chase yeah. your dreams, friends. Chase your dreams. Yeah. But uh, I guess that's the segue is like following dreams, following intuition, you know, finding things that light you up and, and pursuing them. Um, and this part of the conversation we had today with our guest, Cody Kearsley. He's, uh, he's an incredible young man. We also talked a lot about like uh, weightlifting and fitness and training and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, he uh, he's had a cool journey that that has been one where he followed some of these uh, maybe unlikely paths that people would take and um, trusted trusted the process and ended up in some really cool spots. And yeah, great conversation with him. We get into acting. Uh, you know, Cody is known by many as uh, Moose on Riverdale yes. on the, the award-winning Netflix series, uh, you know, based on every, all of our childhood favorite uh, Archie comics on the, on the Riverdale kind of community plays plays moose and uh so we get into to acting directing writing his his journey into all of that athletics sobriety veganism it's kind of a a well-rounded conversation that yeah. kind of goes through cody's journey and how he got to where he is today yeah it was really really inspiring to to chat with him and he's just a someone who's doing like really cool work in the world with uh, the film, the, the shows and stuff that he's part of, but also the films that he's leaning into and sharing his, his roots and his journey. And um, yeah, I just really, really appreciated the chance to sit down with him and hear what he's all, all up to these days. And shout out to Ashley. We're all, all full of shout outs today. Ashley Chisholm, fit and compassionate, former, former podcaster on, on a little more good. Yes. Uh, I have to check which episode we'll throw in the show notes. Uh, for that introduction to Cody. So thank you, Ashley. And uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed getting to sit down and share a conversation with Cody. Sweet. All right, before we let this episode roll, on to this week's sponsors. We're excited to be partnering with Caldera Lab. Gentlemen, we all know first impressions matter. And if you're not taking care of your skin, that's probably the first thing that someone might notice. And they can see, you know, skin that is not being looked after. And they might think you are older than you are or that you just don't really care about your appearance. So show them that you do and make a great first impression with Caldera Lab. Listen, you're going to brush your teeth today and incorporating skincare steps before it. You're guaranteed to not mess up your routine, leaving your breath fresh and your face refreshed. Caldera Lab is there as a high-performance men's skincare product. And the regimen kicks it off. It's their product starting lineup. Twice a day routine that transforms your skin. The regimen has three products, the clean slate, the base layer, and the good. The clean slate starts and ends your day. This face wash leaves all skin types feeling refreshed. The base layer is your daily moisturizer. You got to get on it. It's my favorite. And the good is your go-to multifunctional serum at night that helps your skin look tighter and smoother helping to reduce those visibilities of wrinkles and fine lines. Every drop of this serum is packed with 3.4 million antioxidant units that are there protecting your skin. One minute in the morning, one minute at night, that's all it takes. 
to reduce your wrinkles, fine lines, signs of aging, and to, you know, do a little something special for yourself to make you look good, but also feel good. And you know what? For our listeners, we got a great exclusive offer. This is really the best offer available anywhere. Use more good at calderalab.com and you're going to get 20% off. That's legit. 20% off with the code more good at calderalab.com. Make unforgettable first impressions that lead to those charming words. You look younger or you're looking great. 20% off at calderalab.com with our code more good. There we go. What else, Dean? Who else is bringing the goodness to our ears this week? Yes, we're big fans of our next sponsor, AG1. They are so great. Uh, You know, we love it. We drink AG1 every day. It's really like a foundational piece of our nutrition. And you can't be dialed in if your nutrition is out of whack. And so with 75 high-quality vitamins, ingredients, probiotics, and whole food sourced ingredients. There isn't another daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, which is why I use it every day. It's simple. Mix it up in some fresh water. Drink it. It's the first thing in my system every day. It feels good. It's supporting my gut health, supporting my overall health, helping with energy, and just feeling good. You know, you you feel good when you do something good for yourself. And um, yeah, we're really, really thankful for AG1, knowing that they are just foundational nutrition nutrition that supports whole body health. Gotta love them. Love it. I'm drinking it literally right now as we record this. Mm-hmm. I've got my bottle, did my wake and shake and brought it over here for, for a little pod action. And uh, I love that AG1 is so much more than greens. One daily serving delivers a comprehensive blend of core products working together to fill nutrient gaps and deliver the foundation for better health. I used to take many, many supplements, many pills, many powders, and now I'm just down to my AG1 as it's got vitamins and minerals, pre and probiotics, phytonutrient blend, digestive support, immunity support, metabolism, energy, and stress support, all in one convenient habit. That's the thing. AG1 is not only high quality all-in-one solution, it's easy, it saves you time, you don't have to be confused about which supplement, when and where and which one goes with what, you just take it. And you know what, you can even save money, it costs less than three bucks a day, which is a small price to pay for all of the goodness you're getting. So if you friends are looking for a simpler, effective investment in your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash more good. That's drinkag1.com slash more good. Check it out. There we go. On to this week's episode. All right, all right. Welcome back to another week of A Little More Good. Uh, we're sitting here with a new friend, Cody Kearsley. Welcome to the pod, Cody. What's up? Thank you for having me. Yeah. All right. We're so excited. to. I feel like we share a lot of pillars for you know how we live our lives um, you know, whether veganism, sobriety, fitness, um, pursuing creativity in the arts. Um, so I'm excited to kind of dive into your journey, mm-hmm. see how you became the person that you are today. Um, some might know you from, uh, from the hit Netflix, uh, series Riverdale as Moose. Um, that's a comic book that I grew up reading. I actually like, you know, as a kid, pre-social media I every breakfast I had Archie comics so it was like a very pivotal part of Mm. uh, me and my sister's childhood nice um but maybe to start things out 
we can rewind things back to your childhood. Um, so you grew up uh, in Oliver, BC, right? Yes, I grew up in, in Oliver. Um, I was born in Penticton and then moved to Oliver when I was like two, I think. Okay. Um, spent all my schooling in Oliver. Um, yeah. And what, what was Oliver like growing up? Was it uh, like an adventurous <clears throat> place? Was it, uh, what, yeah, what was your childhood like in Oliver? Um, you know, I couldn't wait to, to leave, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I, I loved, I did love Oliver. It's a beautiful place. Every time I visit now, it's, it's so gorgeous. But I think since I was three years old, I was already performing. Yes. Um, and there just wasn't that many opportunities in, in Oliver. So I, I, always in my mind, I was like, I got to get to the city. I actually wish I moved to the city earlier in life, but um, I graduated in Oliver and in, you know, five months, four months after I graduated, I moved to LA. Wow. Yeah, so I loved Oliver, but I also needed to get out because I knew that wasn't where my path was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, It's like the epitome of like the small town story. Like every kid wants to kind of get out and, and move to the city, but usually a lot of them end up staying stay yeah exactly but to go from like yeah not and not just like vancouver or toronto but like la yeah we dove right in yeah, yeah cultural did you have some like cultural whiplash like going oh, from yeah. the small town to oh yeah the first year it took me a while to like i felt like i was rediscovering myself or learning who i was okay for the first year so it was like a lot of you know a lot of falling on my face i yeah. feel like and then once i kind of found my groove found my the people that i connected with um then it was just kind of like a experience overload, just kind of doing all these things that I never would have imagined, right? Yeah. Um, I grew a lot in about, I was there for five years. Um, so yeah, this is probably the biggest growth of my life. Yeah, I mean, it's a pivotal time, right? Like you finish high school and there's that sense that a lot of us go, you know, traveling or whatever it is, but that, that sense of like finding who you really are. Because yeah. high school is like the bubble. And regardless of, of the community that you grow up in, big or small, like you're kind of housed in this building with, the same people based on like where you live, right? It's like, Hey, you all go here and these are the people that you can make friends with or enemies with or whatever it might be. And then you get out of that and you're like, Oh man, there's so much life beyond this. And, mm -hmm. and you can start to discover yourself. Yeah. What, what were like some of the things that helped you maybe in that path of saying, okay, this is who I think I am, or this is who I am becoming in that space where you were mm. growing up, but also living in a, in a, in a new environment. Um, I think it was, I think one, honestly, one of the biggest things was just how, how diverse LA was in comparison to Oliver, um, not only in, you know, ethnicities, but also just worldviews and mm. politics and religions and, and upbringings and different countries. It's very much a melting pot. So my group of friends was, you know, from all over the world, varying types of identities. Um, so just having being exposed to so many different worldviews was probably the biggest thing. Mm. Not that I was like very close. I was, I'm always an open-minded person, but there's a difference between like being hearing about something and being open-minded versus actually being connected and friends with someone who's from a different place. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like you might've been the one open-minded person in the room in Oliver and now you're one of thousands. Yeah. 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 So it was, it was cool just to like diversify my, my circle. That was the biggest thing. I just learned a lot, different perspectives, different, yeah. Um, yeah. Sweet. And did you go there knowing that you wanted to pursue acting or were you just looking to have an experience in a new place, in a new setting with new people? Um, no, I was, I was fortunate because I, so I, I danced a lot throughout high school and 
I applied for a scholarship to dance studio down there and I got a, I got a scholarship. It was 20, 20 kids that they selected every year. So I went down there with like a set program. So I moved into a house. There was four of the dancers on that program. I was one of them. And we had a, a schedule. So five days a week, we were like in the studio, 10 hour days. Um, so I kind of had a plan going down there. I think it would have been a lot scarier if I just went down there. Um, so I had a plan set. Um, and I was on the scholarship for about three months and then I got kicked off. Oh no. <laughs> Cause I had some visa issues. Okay. Came across, I came back for Christmas, tried to go back. Um, they, I got red flagged at the border and they just kind of were like, Oh, you don't have a visa, but you have this scholarship. You're not allowed to go back to the States. Damn. So I applied for, uh, acting school. I found the school that was issuing visas and I got in. I got a scholarship to that school. Um, and I think within like a few weeks, they had issued me a visa. So I moved back to LA. Um, tried to go back to the dance studio, but they were like, no, nah, you're off the scholarship. You've missed too much. Oh, man. So I kind of just dedicated myself. I was like, all right, I'll, you know, try my hand at acting. I had done plays and stuff through school, but I never really dived into like the craft of it. And this was like a, a theater school, heavy focus on classical theater. Um, a lot of very like, technically trained British actors who are teachers, right? So I dove in and I fell in love with it and I just kind of never looked back. Wow, that's yeah. kind of that's wild Yeah, to think like, you know, the, the random, you know, wh whoever it was, maybe that border agent was like having a bad day, they could have just let yeah, you through, yeah, but they exactly. were like, no. And it changed the trajectory of, of your life, really. Yeah. That's yeah. wild. 100%. And there's been a few moments in my life where I've completely gone down a different path. And that was probably the first biggest one and I fought it I didn't want it to happen I was so I was devastated because I've been dreaming about this specific school that I got the scholarship for I've been yeah. dreaming about that since I was a kid it was like one of the big places to go um so I was devastated and I like didn't really get over it for quite a while like because even when I was in the theater school I was like skipping classes to go back to dance school sure. and I was like no that's where I'm supposed to be um, and then when I finally gave in, I was like, okay, I'll try my hand at this acting. I was like, oh yeah, this is where I'm meant to be. But it wow. took me probably about a year, year of like forcing my way back into that yeah. previous path before I was like, maybe that's not the path for me. Wow. You know? So it's all part of that finding yourself. Like yeah. that, just that identity that you thought this is the path. This is who I'm going to become. Yeah. To then being open to like, oh wait, maybe, maybe it's over here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now when those things have happened, the, the, the time, uh, it takes for me to accept the new path is, is. Short, shorter and shorter. Wow. Right. That's cool. So uh, you mentioned you found yourself acting since the age of three. Uh, what kind of drew you to that? Was it um, embodying other experiences, allowing yourself permission to be somebody else? Like what was the, or uh, the excitement of, of, of play? What was kind of the initial draw into acting? Well, for me, when I was, I was either two or three, and we went and watched uh, my cousin's dance recital, and I was like trying to get up on stage okay. all the time. So my mom was like pulling me off the stage. Yeah. And I was just like a hyper kid. So my mom was like trying to put me in everything just to like release yeah. some of my energy. So she put me in dance class the next year. And I kind of stuck with that all the way through school. And it was just, I, I liked performing. I liked being on stage. I liked being creative. I liked, you know, coming up with things. So I kind of found what other, whatever artistic form there was available. So I was in dance. I joined band. I was in jazz band. I was in the drama programs all through school. In summer, like, I would find, like, you know, a summer um, musical camp or something. Um, I 
played piano. I tried singing lessons. I just tried anything that was available to be creative. Yeah. It didn't matter what it was because I liked performing. I liked being creative. I didn't actually know acting was a thing until I started learning about the the technique and craft of acting. Um, but in high school, I did a bunch of musicals and plays, and I just yeah, I loved performing. That was the main thing. Yeah, you had that. You had that in you. That desire to be, yeah. It, maybe it's that energy that you had as a kid, but that it comes out in like the creative outlet and being, being up on stage for some people, maybe it's like they would say, Oh, it's athletics, but you right. are open to that. The more creative yeah. pursuit than just like physicality, which yeah. often comes out, especially in guys, if we're being, if we're being honest, right. We be like, Oh, I should like play sports and yeah. let it out that way. But it's cool that you found that, that outlet in like a more creative pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was just like being on stage well, I also have, so I have Tourette, so like I'm always twitching and you know doing these things. Um, but when I was on stage, I never did it. Oh, and when I act, I don't do it. So I just feel very comfortable, feel very present. And there's just that feeling of the audience's energy and you being part of this like creative movement is just is very fulfilling. I just found that really early on, and that's kind of the thing that I just I've always known. I was like, I'm gonna do something in the arts. Yeah, mm. right. That's awesome. Do you find that like so? Dean and I in running, we often would find what we call like the flow state in running where kind of time. I've yet to experience this. People keep talking about how good running is. I yeah. hate it. Oh, man. I've never found this runner's high. Okay, keep going. <laughs> I don't keep know. Going. <laughs> but do you kind of experience that when you're on stage? Like you just kind of get into a flow state where like time and space kind of disappears and you're just like locked into that moment? Yeah, yeah. I, I would say so. Yeah. And I, I still try to do a play a year. Um, I haven't for the last couple of years, but I try to. And um, it, it is that moment, like when you're behind the stage, when you have like the nerves, when you're getting ready for the thing, as soon as you walk on stage, the lights are there, you can feel the audience's ener mm. energy. It, it is like you're transported into this other realm where it's just like, I, I don't know, you just feel alive and like everything is like, I don't know what it is, like a dream almost, you know? That's cool. Yeah, it's cool. I like with theater how there's like, uh, you can see the same play with the same actors every day and there's room for variance and, oh, yeah. and difference and um my business partner the juice truck uh ryan his his father ran a um, theater magazine growing up so ryan mm. would go get dragged to, around to all the plays all the time and he'd say you know i saw this play for like the 10th time i was like doesn't it get boring if you see it like 10 times he's like no it's different every time yeah and that's i think that's the live aspect of of theater so yeah. um and so the magic happens yeah like in mistakes i was doing um what play was it? I think it was Taming of the Shrew. And there's a scene where, I don't know the play that well, Petruchio comes back and starts like having this fit and yelling at his servants or whatever. And one of my friends, uh, he was playing one of the servants and he was sitting on this chair and the chair just like fell apart. Literally all four <laughs> legs went to the side. He fell flat on his ass. And the whole audience kind of was like, because <gasps> they were like, didn't know if he was hurt or not. And everyone kind of just held this pause. And he delivered his next line perfectly on cue, <laughs> got a huge laugh. And then this fight ensued where everyone like grabbed a leg of the chair and he had the seat of the chair was using it like a shield. And they just all started fighting on stage during the scene as they were saying the lines. It was beautiful. It was yeah. so great. And that would never happen in like in film, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that would be the, the cut. And yeah, that, exactly. And that moment would be lost. Exactly. That kind of improv improvisational brilliance yeah. that is afforded in live theater exactly oh that's so good it's kind of like a lesson for life too right like being able to have a plan have a script an idea of like what you're going to do but then be open to when the chair falls apart right yeah. when the visa gets taken away and you're like okay well shit like now what yeah and i think that's uh that's like a good that's a good reminder right? we always have these things that, that 
oh, it's what's true in this could be true in life. And I mean, I think that that, that skill of being able to be like on your feet and ready to react and know, okay, how, how am I going to respond in this moment and, and kind of still be able to deliver is like key. Yeah. That's key. hundred percent. Oh man. So fun. I did a few plays in high school. And oh, like, what'd you do? Well, yeah. Well, one was, uh, well, the first time was elementary school. It was, a, it was like a, not, not clowns, but it was called like the big, the big wheel or the big top or something. And then I was like this character, like the big wheel. So I didn't actually like perform on stage, but I had like all of these lines. And so I was like kind of hidden off the side and it was really fun. And then we did, uh, everything I needed to know for life. I learned in kindergarten or whatever. It's like this like fun one in high school that was super fun. But I took acting 12 just as like a, Mm -hmm. as an elective and I loved it. It was my favorite class in yeah. grade 12. And we did this, we did this play and it was funny because I was like the rugby player, basketball player. And then everyone's like, wait, like you're in the play. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> it's the best. You got to come see it. And uh, it was so fun. It was, it's a, such a thrill. I've, That's cool. Similar to you. I've always wanted to be kind of in the spotlight performer, music, mm. whatever it is, like different, different bands and things like that. And yeah, it's good. It's a good feeling that live energy. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So are special. you in a band or do you have that? Yeah, I used to be. Used to okay. be back. Yeah. And it feels like a lifetime ago now. Yeah. But always loved it. There's nothing better. Like recording was fun, but it was like so meticulous. It's like film, right? Right. You do it and you make sure that it's perfect because right. it's like you're capturing this thing. Whereas live, there's all sorts of room for, for mm-hmm. mistakes and nuance and fun and improv and, you know, let's 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 roll that let's roll that again or that solo is going to go like an extra four or five right. bars like let's right so yeah yeah i love that yeah do you find it um taught you to deal with diverse situations in life that kind of ability to to improv and to be able to put different hats on for different situations yeah um not only in the the live aspect of performing, but also just being in the theater, you kind of have to, you have to wear many hats. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when we're doing, I did a lot of like 99 seat black box theater where there's no money. Yes. Like I did Hamlet and I got paid $6 a performance. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. And we don't have money to hire people. So we're like, we're figuring out our own costumes. We're building the sets ourselves. I, yeah. amount of times I've painted the stage. Like I've, I've done so many different things. Um, and I love that. I really do like that. Um, so I, I definitely feel like those skills have translated to life. I've, I can be pretty resourceful and figuring stuff out. So I like producing because producing is really just solving problems and putting out fires. Yes. Right. I, I love that kind of stuff. That's cool. Um, I want to get into your, your, your film that's coming out, Breathe, but um, I'd love to kind of explore your, your own kind of personal journey before we get there. Um, I know sobriety is kind of one of the, the pillars of, of your own being. Um, I'd love to kind of unpack, um, I think in hearing other people's experience in finding sobriety, you know, there's lots of people that listen that, you know, either struggle with alcohol or other forms of addiction or, or could just have more intention in their life and, mm-hmm. and choosing to drink less or, or to pass on other you know, damaging aspects of their life that allow for more possibility. So I'm always, I always think it allows for other people to live their best life and hearing other people's journeys to find those versions of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, in your own journey to sobriety, um, would love to unpack that and kind of hear how you, how you got there, the point where you realized change was something that would best benefit kind of your life if you wanted to 
to keep things going mm-hmm. how you kind of were hoping for things to go? Yeah. Um, I mean, I started drinking pretty late, I feel, like 17. Just kind of late, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I loved it. It was great. So, <laughs> so 17, you're like grade 11, grade 12? Grade 11. I think I just moved to... I just moved to Penticton. Okay. So I spent one year going to school in Penticton. Yeah. And I was always so busy before. Like, school, I'd go right to the dance studio after, right to sport practice. Um, yeah. Whatever I was doing at the time, play rehearsal. I was so busy. I didn't really party that much before then. Yeah. 17, I moved to a new school in Penticton. And um, I was like the new kid trying to fit in, trying to figure out where my people were. Yes. Um, so I like, started going to parties that summer and like just started drinking. And I loved it. It was great. Loved the feeling. Loved how confident I was. Could just go and do anything. I was so bold. Um, I would just walk up to anybody and say whatever. You know what I mean? Um, so then it just became like part of my life. Like I... Yeah, I just loved partying. All through school, um, when I was in LA, I, I did a lot of club crawl type stuff, working in nightclubs. And then I was just a, like, my job was to party. Yeah. I literally wake up in the morning, go sell tickets for these club crawls on Hollywood Boulevard, be drinking all day long, getting people to the club, and then partying with them all night, making sure they had a good time. It was part of my life. Um, and there's a few periods in my life, I think, where the the addiction was exasperated one of them was probably the club crawls because it was like every single day 24 7 yeah so it amplified a lot and then i moved back to canada when i was like and that was when i was like 21 to 23 moved back to canada when i was 24 and by that time it had gotten to a point where like i was i can't say everything but i was like putting myself in a lot of dangerous situations on the verge of like really just really really dangerous situations um, ruining relationships, ruining my career, burning bridges left, right, and center. Um, and it got to a point where I had to quit. Um, and I was sober, kind of white knuckling it for two years. And then I booked my, and I was like struggling as an artist, you know, all these kind of things. And then I booked a, a show where it was my first series regular. And I remember on the plane ride to Albuquerque, that's where I was shooting. I, after two years of sobriety, I had a glass of champagne because I was celebrating myself. I was like, I am, you know. You did it. I did it. Yeah. And then as soon as I landed, it was just, I was off, you know. Yeah. And then for the next two and a half years, I was partying. And then COVID, and COVID happened during that time. And that was another moment where it exasperated as well. Yeah. So like, you know, we're isolating. I was just, again, 24-7, a lot of times in isolation, um, drinking, um, using. And it got to a point where, again, the dangerous situations were even amplified, more amplified. So I was in a place where, like, I if I was if I'm not if I wasn't sober right now, I, I wouldn't be here. Wow. It was to a point where I still get like moments where like my knees get weak, and I like rem, I'm reminded of certain moments or situations when I was using that I like still brings up fear in me, right? So I still there's moments where I like need to disable myself because it is like PTSD almost, mm. right? Um. So it just got to a point where it was destroying every aspect of my life, my relationships, my work, my, my health, my safety, everything. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this story is so profound. And as Zach was saying, like when we hear, you know, how people lived and their, their journey towards sobriety, like it's so inspiring and it's an invitation for someone who is maybe in the throes of it, right. That whatever their addiction might be to know there's like another side, there's a, mm. there's a, there's a way out. And sometimes it, it's, 
people can just grit their teeth and do it on their own. Other times it's through interventions and friends and family who will come around you and support you and say, Hey, like we can see that this is happening. And you, you had the ability and the recognition yourself to look and go, man, this is, this is costing me everything yeah. or potentially could right from, from the career that you were building, the health that you had to even your life. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it doesn't get more important than that. And I think that it's really important for people to see, you know, that there are ways out. There are, there are opportunities to, to find help, to get, to get um, support and access to resources to, to move through these things because it's common. Like I think that we often think, oh yeah, you know, in the wellness space or whatever, like, no, no, that's, those issues don't exist here, but they do often. Mm-hmm. And I think that people need to know that it's like, it's normal, but that doesn't make it okay. And that mm-hmm. there's like ways to move forward and, and to be healthy. Um, did you have people in your life that like kind of like saw that in you and said like, yo, maybe like pump the brakes or was it really like kind of self-led? No, it was, I mean, I, cause I, like I said, I was sober for two years before my last kind of big journey of addiction. So like always in the back of my mind, I was like, I got to get sober one day. Yeah. Mm. But it was next to impossible too. It would be like, you know, a two week bender and then. I'm like literally dying and I'm like, okay, I gotta get sober and I'd be sober for three days and then, you know, back at it. Right. Um, so in my mind, I always knew it needed to happen. And there was also people that were pushing me in that direction as well. And at the last kind of final bender I had, um, luckily I was surrounded. I kind of came to around uh, a few people in my life that really loved me and they were all kind of like, Hey, this is what we think you should do. Mm. And I kind of didn't really fight it. Yeah. You know, I was like, yeah, you probably, right, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. but I, I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have taken that first step myself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as much as I know I wanted to and I needed to, I don't know if I would have actually taken that first step myself. Yeah. And you were functioning and showing up as an actor and through, through all of this. Yeah. 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 I was, um, you know, my work, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'd like to say my work didn't suffer, but who knows like what it could have been if I wasn't right. But um, yeah, I was, I was making things work. It's it, you kind of in that space where you're just struggling to stay above water, keeping your head afloat. And it's very much like living, spent a lot of time just living in panic and living in fear, being mm-hmm. like, whether you're hiding something from someone or making sure you show up on time or you're trying to like, you're trying to keep all these balls up in the air. Right. Um, and a lot of it is in, in secrecy mm-hmm. and trying to protect everything. Um, so looking back on it, I was like, how, how was I not? having a breakdown like every few days, you know, but I was making it work and it's just kind of that survival mentality. Like the addiction becomes a survival almost. Mm. Um, yeah. How, how have things changed since you found sobriety? Has your life changed for, for better or for worse or what have the challenges been or the, the clarity or how, how have things changed since you've found sobriety? It's a, it's a, it's a, a lot of good. Um, a lot of challenges. It's like, cause I blew up my life pretty bad. I put myself in a, in a position where my life was pretty much as low as it could get. So there's a lot of rebuilding to do. And I still feel like I'm in a rebuilding phase. There's been a lot of obstacles that at least I have the clarity and like the strength to face them head on. Mm. Um, whereas before I would have just avoided them. Um, but it's been the most challenging two years I've been sober two and a half years. It's been the most challenging two and a half years, I think, of my life because 
um, there's just a lot of challenges to face because I, I created a lot of problems for myself. So now it's like rebuilding that, facing all those problems, making your amends. Um, they're tough things to do. So it's been hard, but I, you know, found the first year of sobriety, the first summer was like the best summer of my life. Started longboarding, started graffitiing. I started doing like all these things. I felt like a teenager. I started doing all these things where like I loved life. Like I would just drive in my car. I got, I started listening to house music. I never listened to house music before. I would drive in my car and like listen to house music as the sun, like downtown when the sun's like reflecting on all the windows. It's beautiful. I would just drive downtown, drive into North Van and I would just be like so happy and grateful to be alive. Mm. And I would go like cliff jumping, go to the beach with friends. I would longboard the seawall, go to the drum circles, just doing all these activities uh, that like filled me with joy and be like, oh, life is so beautiful. So in those things, life is incredible. I never would have heard the birds singing in the morning. <laughs> never would have felt the sun, you know, on my face. I know this sounds so cheesy, but they're really beautiful things. Yeah. Um, so I found a lot of joy in my life, but the challenges are challenging. So it's kind of that rebuilding phase is tough but it's it's worth it for all those other things that come along with it yeah i guess i guess in the past maybe when things are hard you know thinking from my own experiences like you would i would drink you know if things mm -hmm. were hard i would have a have a beer or something to take off that edge um but when you remove that from your life you just all of a sudden instead of escaping hard things you're dealing with them face yeah. on so have you found that um there isn't that same sense of escapism. You're just like dealing with experiencing life as it comes at you. Yeah, there's a there's a little bit of it still. I think we all have that, you know, like whether it's, you know, video games or... Of course. Mm -hmm. You know, just procrastinating for whatever thing it is. Yeah. But there is a lot more facing it head on, um, which which is great because it's, it's like I got in this habit of there'll be like a letter I have to mail. It's the easiest thing. I just have to go to the post office and mail it, but I wouldn't do it for like weeks. I'd be looking at it. And then when I go do it, I feel so accomplished. It was the simplest task ever. Like, why can't I just do that? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So now I'm getting better at like, as soon as something comes up, you do it right away. Um, and then you just feel more accomplished and you get more things done. And then things kind of snowball. Um, but the escapism happened definitely for the first little while with just different things. Now I feel like I'm tackling things more head on. Yeah. Cool. I feel like I got a lot, a lot of letters to mail. Right now. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I don't know why it's so daunting. Like, <laughs> yeah, man. And I just, I hate paperwork. I hate like administration type stuff in my life. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm pretty organized and pretty good at it, I just don't like it. Yeah. You know, and I just procrastinate on that kind of stuff. It's the burden of uh, of our current reality, right? You got to yeah. file those taxes. And yeah. Oh my like, God. Oh. I can't wait to like be able to afford a personal assistant. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Can you take care of all of these things? Yeah. Um, what are some like habits or practices? Like you, you'd mentioned obviously like longboarding or, or listening to the music yeah. and driving around and like taking in the beauty of just like the mundane or the everyday, mm -hmm. which, you know, some people may say, Oh, that's so cheesy. But those are the moments that can be like most profound or like yeah. most spiritual, the, the simplest little things that like most people overlook or wouldn't give credit to. It's like, no, those are the moments, yeah. right? Like the simplest things. But um, outside of those, are there like, do you have like daily rituals or habits or things that you're like, these are my, these are my must, like my go-tos for maintaining just like that balance or that sense of, you know, overall feeling good in your life? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the gym fitness is a big one. Um, but the first two years of sobriety, I, I was really focusing on the joy and just new hobbies and being grateful to be alive. And recently I kind of came to the realization that I was 
becoming a little complacent in that. Um, so my last little, the last little bit, I've been getting back into like a hustling type mentality of like refocusing that energy into something that's um, like more driven, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So now, now my daily rituals are coming in place. Like gym every day, getting back into yoga, getting back into healthy eating, getting back into meditation, getting back into like goal setting, getting back into um, wanting to make money. You know, these things that I'm like, I want to take charge of my life and actually like create the life I want. Mm-hmm. Before I was just enjoying the life that exists, which is important. And now it's like, now I'm creating the life that I want. Yeah. Cause it can become like too passive, right? Like, yeah. like, and there's something, there's something to be said for being present and enjoying what you have in the moment and not yeah. just always looking down the road for what's next. But at the same time, like if we don't take control of, of our lives, we can end up just kind of like becoming passive and like letting things happen, letting life happen to us yeah. rather than pursuing it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I got, I got a little bit too into letting life happen to me. Mm. So now I'm trying to take control of that again <laughs> yeah oh that's good that's yeah. good do you uh i, I know we have the, the mutual friend of, of ashley mm-hmm. chisholm she's been on the pod before and, and she talked a lot about like manifestations is that something you practice like like having an idea of like what you want to do kind of speaking it out and like pursuing this path of like you know trusting the universe or whatever powers might be to say okay this is out there for me and i just have to like hold it loosely but like move towards it yeah i definitely manifest uh, i've always done i made like like I've always had stuff on my walls since I was kids of things that I wanted to achieve. And generally they come true in some way or another. Right. Like I remember I loved Motown music growing up and I had like all these Motown things or I had a couple Motown posts on my wall. I ended up meeting Barry Gordy. It's like the owner of Motown records. Yeah. Right. Uh, a few years later at Debbie Reynolds dance Academy in LA. Wow. Or not Debbie Reynolds, Debbie Allen's. Um, so little things like that always come into existence. They always have. So I definitely believe in manifestation and goal setting. I found the last little while it hasn't been working as much as I like feel like I'm on the right path, manifesting, working towards my goals. It keeps feeling like I'm hitting a wall and I'm not getting through. Um, And I think it has to do with alignment. I heard recently, I can't remember who was saying this, was like manifestation works, but it it only works when you're in alignment. Um, And same thing with like luck. I had a friend that said luck, I don't believe in luck. I believe in being in, in alignment. Mm. So I feel like the last couple of years, I've just been trying to get back into alignment with my path and what I'm supposed to be doing and who I am. Um, Cause manifestation hasn't been working for me, yeah. <laughs> but hopefully the more, the more on my right path I am, then the manifestation will start coming into alignment. You know? Yeah. Yeah. We were listening to uh, Bob Proctor. Mm. Um, he's a, you know, Canadian, speaker businessman that's you know since passed but he mm-hmm. talked about manifestations just changing our frequency to the the, mm. the you know if you want to be if i want to be have this success or have this career or achieve this or or have this feeling it's seeing what frequency that is mm-hmm. um you can model it after a person or a business and trying to align our frequency to be in the same yeah alignment like you said as 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 this wave of being. So like that. something that Dean and I are working on too is attuning our frequency to, to where we want to be. Right. Yeah. I like uh, that. And just being, you know, just like we changed the station on a radio for people that still have a dial. I don't know if anyone still has a <laughs> dial, but uh, yeah. you know, just keep turning it until you find the station that you want, yeah. the music that you want. And then for sure. ride that wave for a while. 
And it's little things like when you change the way you're thinking, all of a sudden you'll have a conversation with someone at a party that you just connect and you might not have connected in that same way if you weren't thinking that way. And then all of a sudden you start hanging out and your circle of friends starts changing, right? And your goals start being aligned with the people that you're around. So I'm kind of, I'm, here, here's the thing. The last little while I felt as much as I've been grateful to be here and like enjoying all these things, I felt a little bit kind of like um, I'm floating in the sea. And if, I, if, if I'm in the sea and I see the shore, I'd be paddling like fuck to get there. You know what I mean? But I haven't felt like I've seen any land anywhere. I've mm. just been kind of floating out in the middle, like not really knowing where to go. That's kind of where I'm at right now. So like I'm trying to figure out what that direction is. Hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Treading water. I feel like I've been there many times. Yeah. Just trying to figure out which direction to right. start swimming. And it's like, do we try to figure out the direction ourselves or do we wait for a sign? <laughs> what yeah. is, what wait, do we do? wait till the tide takes us. Right. Till we, uh, wait till the tide. Yeah. I don't know. Do you fight the tide is. or do you just let the... Uh, the tide take you where it's gonna take you. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a combination of both those things, depending on what's happening in life. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. And sometimes, like, there's lessons in just being lost in the water, right? Right. That like you, that's not where you want to stay. But maybe there's something in there that right now it's like frustrating, man. Why do I keep hitting this wall? Like, what is this? And then in time, you'll see, like, oh shoot, okay, this is like what I gained yeah. from this season, right? Yeah, you always yeah. notice the lessons. Years afterwards. Yeah, it's yeah. true. It's true. There was, what's that saying? It's like, I wish or I wish that when you're in the good times, you knew they were the good times. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> I think about that a lot. Like, um, like, are these the good times? Yeah. Like, look back on it. And yeah. <laughs> Have we peaked? <laughs> well, when I was younger, I traveled a lot and I always thought I would always travel. Mm-hmm. And that would just be, I, I took it for granted how many places I was able to go see and experience right. and then started a business, mm-hmm. got married, had kids. And I haven't like been on a plane in like, you know, a long time. Right. I haven't traveled anywhere or done anything. And I always, I never realized in that time that that was special, you know, yeah. I thought it would be a lifestyle forever, right? but it was a special chapter and I can right. only see that now. I might have that chapter again, maybe in my fifties or something yeah, when yeah, my yeah. kids are older, yeah, but yeah. You know, it's it's a funny thing, time, you know, you're able mm-hmm. to to see things in the past and it's hard to see them in the moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay, sobriety has been, been part of your journey and, and fitness and wellness and, and another one of those pillars has been veganism. Mm-hmm. Um, did that come into play through sobriety or, or how did that... Um, how did the plant-based lifestyle come on, come onto your, your doorstep? Yeah, I was vegan a lot longer, a lot more. Um, I've been vegan a lot longer than I've been sober. Okay. And I said, I said this to someone recently, kind of joking, but kind of serious. I was like, um, they're like, why were you vegan before you're sober? I was like, well, I love animals. I hate myself. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a little bit of truth that I think, yeah. but yeah, I, I started seeing someone, I think this was like seven, six years ago, something like that. Very brief period, but um, that person was vegan and they inspired me to kind of look into it because I just, I'd gained a bunch of weight and I was trying to get in shape really quick. So I went pescatarian, just trying to eat healthy, cut out everything. Um, And then I started seeing this person who was vegan and they started saying like, hey, why don't you watch this? I think the first person I watched was Gary Yurofsky. Do you know him? Yeah, he's got the the YouTube video of like um, 
something about the best diet in the world. Or, oh, does he? Maybe or, I probably. I've seen he's like I've seen one of his lectures. He talks about like he's our, bald. He's Jewish. Yes. He's like he's very like what's the word? Speaks. He's very animated. He's very animated. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I watched one of his things and he said something. He like every point he made, I was like, damn, this is like blowing my mind right now. And I didn't realize kind of. I didn't realize what the factory farming industry did. I didn't realize what happened to animals. I just, you know, like everyone, there was a um, there was a block in how the animal got to our plate. Yes. Um, and when I actually started researching what happened to them, like the practices that we do, I was like, this is what we're doing. Absolutely not. I want anything to do with it. And then I couldn't even look at meat or mm-hmm. eggs or dairy in the same way. I was like, I don't want I don't want any animal to go through that torture just for me to enjoy something and I'm not even enjoying it that much after I have dairy I feel disgusting after I've read meat I feel tired you know what I mean and then you know so the first reason I really went vegan is because of the animals second reason I started researching about the environment how much is destroying our planet and then a bonus byproduct is the health benefits that I feel much better way more energized way more clear there's like a fog in my mind that had been lifted as soon as I stopped eating meat and dairy I just felt so much more clear and more connected and more conscientious of every every decision I've made, like mm-hmm. little interactions. I've just more kind of felt more connected to everybody in the planet and myself. You know what I mean? You it's guys a, understand it, right? It's, yeah. it's amazing that domino. I think like <clears throat> yeah. it's kind of a ripple, like for in my own experience, it's like a ripple of intention. Yeah. Um, I was, you know, you talked about being a passenger, being passive, letting life happening to you. Mm-hmm. I think with food for myself, I just eat whatever. You know, if chicken wings were on special, I ate them. Yeah. You know, like whatever whatever was being served up, I was there for it. And then when I had that realization similar to yourself of what was happening to the animals, you know, it was completely disassociated. I think most people would consider themselves animal lovers, but disassociate what happens to animals before they become meat or or food on your plate. People get so upset when they hear about animals being abused until you talk about the animals that they're eating. Yes. It's funny, hey? It's so bizarre. Yes. Yeah. We've made that we've made that like line yeah. where, oh yeah, like how could someone do that to like a dog or whatever? Or even a farm animal, right? Yeah. And then but then when it comes down to what's on their plate, it's like a disconnect. Yeah. It's like hard to see. I mean, I remember I had that. I was like, no, nah, it's Same. no big deal, whatever. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you once you see, mm-hmm. you can't unsee. It's like people you can't unsee it. That's it's so true. Um, and anyone that sees, you know, animal abuse videos like factory farming, they're like, oh, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that. But then they still support it. The, the the wildest one is the dog meat festival. People get so, which is like horrible, but people get so upset about it in North America, yet they're eating pigs as they're getting mad about yeah, it. You yes. know what I mean? It exposes a couple of things, like the hypocrisy of, of, you know, being against something that really you're doing. Exactly. And also like... I always look at it with a little bit of suspicion of like, is this just low key racism? Cause like it's right. not, it's in a different part of the world yeah. and you'd be like, Oh, cause I've heard of those people. Right. And it's like, There's definitely a racist aspect. Of it, yeah. Yeah. So it, it's kind of a, it kind of reveals a few things yeah. that are inherently, you know, not so great about some of these practices that yeah. we have. Yeah. Judging others for doing something that's the same thing, yeah. but with a different, animal that we might see as a pet i mean people in india hold the cow as sacred right and you know they might think oh those people over there like eat hamburgers all day yeah it's a just wherever perspective you take perspective yeah 
And it, the first, I heard the term speciesism came into play when I was first researching, which made so much sense to me. But how we put different value on different animals' lives. Mm-hmm. Like when we were kids, that's the first thing we're taught. Yeah, Gary Rossi was saying like before sexism or homophobia or racism, the first, how you're putting different quantities on different lives, the first thing you learn is speciesism, where like, you know, we put this much value on a dog's life. We love them, we pet them, we care for them. But a chicken, we kill those, we yes. eat those. Pig, we kill those, we eat those, they're food for us. So right away we're learning to put different values on different sentient beings, mm-hmm. right? And we're separating them, um, which I thought was an interesting point. I feel like that conversation is, is very nuanced, but that you know I, that was the first time I heard that term and it made sense to me. I was like, oh yeah, why am I treating different animals um, differently based on what they look like? Yes, and and what are what is that judgment being passed on? It's not on intelligence or the ability to be a sentient being that feels fear, anxiety, cuteness, stress. To be honest. Yeah, it's, it, exactly. It's so, it's, or how much meat they would provide for us. Yes, yes. You know, yeah. It's funny how I mean, uh, what's uh, Dr. Melanie Joy? How she talks about uh, uh, her books, like uh, it's love. that whole introduction of like the stew, right? Yes. Yeah, she tells that whole story in, in, in her book about like uh, why we, why we love whatever, some animals and Do- eat. Dogs and cats and eat uh, pigs and cow, eat pigs and wear cows and all that stuff. And yeah. she kind of introduces this, this meal that she's sharing with this hypothetical meal and her guests are like, oh, it smells delicious. So like the meat is so tender and rich mm-hmm. and so flavorful. Like, what is it? She's like, oh, it's it's Labrador. It's like a golden golden yeah. lab, lab, Labrador, and you know everyone spits out their food or throws mm. up and is so shocked. And it's just the standard of 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 what we think is okay. I mean, I think like I mentioned at the beginning, you start when you start to look at your food differently and make choices around your meals differently. You start to bring that intention into different aspects of your life. I think mm-hmm. you are now choosing your meals intentionally, and I think you're seeing the world with a different intention, maybe more critical or constructive of, of some of these constructs, these mm-hmm. isms, whether it's speciesism or colonialism or racism or sexism, um, I, are choosing which clothing we wear, where mm-hmm. it was made. I think they're just for myself, at least there was more, I started to consider things more, not yeah. to say I, I made the right choice all the time or, or, did the right thing all the time, but there is, there's definitely more consideration in my life for, um, how things come to be since going vegan. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I found, I I mean, I'm still learning and evolving like we all are, but like, you know, when I'm buying clothes now, I'll look at the tag and, Mm -hmm. you know, consider that process or consider buying secondhand instead of from a, you know, big store or whatever. I think the ripples are, yeah. Are, are quite positive. Well, it's like so many people will like, I've heard the argument, people are like, why do you care about animals? There's people suffering in the mm. world. I'm like, they're not, you don't just pick a one cause and only stick with that one. Yes. Um, like you were saying, when you go vegan, like it's a ripple effect of intention. You start, you start becoming more aware of how it's harming humans as well. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's a lot of abuse toward, there's a lot of racism and, uh, um, 
immigration issues in the in the in the slaughterhouse and factory farm and horrible human uh, human working conditions as well you know what i mean it's yeah it's kind of it allows us to examine all areas of abuse in life whoever's being harmed it's not specific to animals that's just um i don't i feel like that's just it's like a byproduct of of the industry like i can't yeah. imagine I've got an uncle that worked in a butcher shop for like a week. And then right. when he was in his twenties, he's in his seventies. Now he's been vegetarian ever since. Yeah. yeah. And I think the, I mean, that's the human experience. The people that are slaughtering these, these, innocent, these animals, like there's trauma there. Yeah. Alcoholism is, ra- is rampant in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Same with domestic violence. It's rampant. Um, and they are hiring people who like don't really have any other options sometimes, right? Yeah. They're taking advantage of the workers. It's really sad. It's very true. And even the the amount of food that goes into feeding the animals, yeah. right? We talk about food insecurity among yeah. human populations, and yeah. it's like we could solve that. We could solve that overnight. Yeah. 100%. If we instead of feeding all of this corn and grain and food that we're raising and growing, if we fed some of that to the human people that needed it and also yeah. changed some of the land to be more crop diverse. Yeah. It's better for the environment. It gives us a lot more. You're not just going to feed people corn, but you can grow yams and yeah. all kinds of things that could feed you know people with, with uh, food insecurity. Yeah. And so you say, oh yeah, it's why do you care about just animals, right? And not people. It's like, no, this is like one huge thing that is going to help everyone, everybody. Yeah. Right. And so it is, it's like a, it's a, it's a holistic concern yeah there's no losing there's, there's literally no losing. like there's no downside there's no downside i was vegan. eating a vegan meal one time and i wasn't even talking about veganism this guy was getting so mad at me <laughs> yeah just saying like you know how many animals they kill to clear the land for your fucking avocados blah 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 <laughs> yeah like all these types of arguments yeah, yeah. and i didn't really come back because i could tell when you someone's in that type of mentality you, nothing you're gonna say is gonna change yeah. their mind but like 80% of the crop, I think it's 80% of the crops that we grow go towards feeding the animals. So they're clearing that space. Most of that space is cleared in order to feed your, the animals that you're consuming. Yeah. And the amount of food it takes to feed a cow compared to how many, like the amount of meat you get from that cow is like drastic. Oh yeah. Right. Um, and also something else about veganism, someone that I, I, I like the saying is like veganism isn't um, eradicating harm completely because it's impossible to not cause harm you know but it's trying to minimize the amount of harm we do mm-hmm. as much as possible yeah right yeah that was like the uh the guy from there's a that netflix show the the biggest little farm i don't know if you've seen it mm-hmm. it's a great it's a great documentary about how these people like revitalized this land in in california and you know took it from basically like this arid uh, dry patch of almost desert and and completely turned it into this beautiful landscape and they did so like really naturally and um you know i've heard them on a few podcasts and they're not vegan yeah right and they raise animals and eventually they they will like you know sell them or they sell the eggs from the chickens and stuff but they are are like so in tune with what needs to be done to have this like holistic system and it was interesting hearing them on a on a podcast and the the, I can't remember his name, but the farmer, he said like, even when people come at us at like the market and say, you should, you guys are doing such a good thing. Like you should consider, you know, not selling the animals or whatever. And he's like, well, in some ways, like we need to, because mm-hmm. it subsidizes the good work that we're doing. And he's like, and also like your avocados aren't cruelty free. I hate to break right. it to you. Yeah, right? exactly, yeah. So I think it's like finding that nuance and finding that understanding of like, there are ways that are really, really bad for humans, for yeah. animals and the environment. And then there are ways that are like maybe less 
bad. I mean, you can still say, I'm not going to choose to eat animals, but if you are, maybe there's a better way than just like factory farm and this and that. And so there's always room for nuance. And, and, you know, Zach and I have even talked before with, with some people and and maybe this is bridging the gap into another part of the conversation, but here, uh, in, in Canada at least, and, and of course in North America, but like the connection to animals that like our indigenous populations have is different than like a vegan connection mm-hmm. of like, Hey, we respect and care for, but, but it's more stewardship and belonging to the land as the animals do and not necessarily, uh, owning or having ownership or dominion over them, yeah. which is like a very colonial mindset of like, well, we're here to like eat these animals, like God or whatever gave us these to eat yeah. rather than seeing it as like a, as like a, a, a symbiotic relationship of like, no, we're all connected. We're all one. Yeah. I've yeah. heard that argument of like, God's given us the dominance over these animals. Therefore we, I hate that. It's, it's so it's, stupid. It's stupid. Trust um, me, take it, take it from me, someone who's on the inside. It's not a, it's not what it says. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that argument, you can just say that's actually, you got, you need, you need to go back and read that book again right. that you hold up when you yell at I people. I like a lot of quotes from the Bible can be used to, <laughs> you know, prove your point on either, either oh, side man. of things. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And it also, it frustrates me sometimes when vegans like attack indigenous groups for, you know, their cultural practices because yeah. The the way the factory farming and, and climate change is all set up is all from colonization. <laughs> they wouldn't be so so much of an issue if this never happened. The, mm-hmm. the, the way that we respected animals and the way that we were part of the food chain yes. before, part of the circle of life, now we're removed from the circle of life. We kind of are creating the circle of life. We're breeding these animals for our food. Before indigenous cultures, when the way that they were um, consuming animals and 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 you know, like you were saying, stewards of the land. That wasn't the problem. No. Yeah. It's with reverence and with connection and with understanding of, of what's being taken and, and the cost of that. Yeah. And it's completely, it's completely different than what we've created now. Yeah. And had we, I mean, I, I think I said it before, we were running through Pacific Spirit Park in uh, in Vancouver here. And we're like, can you imagine if, if you know, the the people who came over from Spain and Britain and all of these places to, to take over this land, if they would have just like listened and paused and yeah. not just said, Hey, like you don't know much. We're just going to like take this and, and set up shop here and change it. Like if people had stopped and listened to the indigenous wisdom that was right there, like mm-hmm. all of Vancouver could be like Pacific spirit park and like, we wouldn't have all this factory farming. Yeah. Climate change is a huge part of like the industrial revolution, which is the byproduct of colonialism and setting up shop to mm-hmm. support the empire. Right. And it's like, Oh my God, if we would have just paused and listened, yeah. imagine <laughs> there would be no cop 26 climate summits. Like right, right. it's wild. It's wild to think the the downstream, like deleterious effects that colonialism yeah. had, has had on well, humans and on the environment. That's like the whole land back movement. If we yeah. get back into an, you know, indigenous sovereignty where indigenous people choose what happens to the, to our land, it would be so much better. Mm-hmm. So, okay. I want to continue on veganism, but I also want to explore, you know, some of your, your Métis roots and in indigenous community that you're part of. Um, I just had one thought that I wanted to share before we kind of go to that chapter. Um, we were talking about um, the inefficiency of, of farming and all of that. And, I think it's sometimes easy to like make it as a financial comparison. Like I think with chicken, uh, it's like you feed a chicken 100 calories for us to get one calorie. Yeah. So if I gave you $100 and I only got $1 back, yeah. like would you like that deal? No. Probably not, right? Yeah. Like if you only got a dollar for every $100 you put in, 
that's kind of the deal we have with our current factory farming yeah. system. You, you know, we're putting, you know, chickens a more efficient meat animal in that sense, and it's it's a bad deal for all of us. Yeah. So just it makes sense. It's so backwards. Yeah. It's all profit driven. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's why we're desensitized about the animals before they get to our plate is because they're not viewed as animals. They're viewed as products. Mm -hmm. Yes. We don't see them as individuals. No. Well, and that's like, that's the the unfortunate brilliance of carnism, right? was to change our understanding of like, it's not an animal. It's a product. It's chicken Mm. breast or it's, uh, you know, T-bone steak, bacon. Like it's rebranding, relabeling, putting it in nice, like clean looking packages. Yeah. And I don't use those terms anymore now. I, I say pigs or cows when yes. I'm just talking about that. Me too. Yeah. And some of my kids, like, uh, like we'll talk about, you know, that's a cow burger or, you know, we'll, we'll put the words of the animals on the product so yeah. that, um, like, our kids don't eat meat, but they're, they don't eat meat because it's their choice because right. they see it as an animal. Right. Um, I said cow milk one time. Someone got mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's what it is. What do you mean? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, you could make it even worse. You could be like cow milk for a baby. I know. Calf I know, right? from a. That's honestly, milk is the most disgusting thing yes. to me that people can still drink. Well, it's weird. Yeah. It's weird. Like when you break it down and think about it, like basically humans are the only species that, without some sort of weird, you know, circumstance, really, but like on mass, we're the only species that would a continue to drink milk mm-hmm. well after we've developed. Uh, from the infant stage where yeah. milk is how you get your sustenance and grow. And it is yeah. an amazing thing, but we're the only species that continues to drink it well after it's required. And the only species that drinks it from another species yeah. or multiple different species. Like you can get goat milk yeah, if yeah. you're so enthused. And I'm like, it's just wild. It's gr- It's so weird. It's yeah. so gross. And like all the, like there's a certain amount of pus that's allowed to be in the milk. Yes. Um, yeah, ooh, yeah. <laughs> like, like, could you imagine if I was like, "Oh, here's some of my wife's breast milk," and like it was at the center of the table, yeah, and yeah. all drinking it? Like, you guys would definitely take pause. <laughs> well, and like, like about pass, the, yeah, yeah. And that's like human, yes, right? And we're like grossed out or weirded out by that. And that's the most. That should be our most yeah, natural. Exactly. Like, if you're gonna drink any milk, yeah, I mean, that's what it's for. It's for us. Yeah. Let, let alone from from an animal. Although, like most people would see a cow. They're they're beautiful animals. They really are. But if you saw it out on the field, you wouldn't be like, I'm a drink from that udder. No, like exactly. It just would so never, gross. it would yeah. never I mean, cross some people do on farms. I've seen people, videos of it. It's pretty yes. gross. Yeah. Yes. Just squirting it into their mouth. Yeah. yeah. Um, another thing is like so many people, I've even, I, I've, I've informed people about this, that cows, in order to produce milk, need to have a baby. Yes. So many people are like, oh no, they're dairy cows. They just produce milk naturally. <laughs> I mean, no, they have to be impregnated yeah. and the baby's taken away so we can take their milk. Yeah. People don't know that. Yeah. It's like they think that they're just walking around it's like these, milk. these milk machines. Yeah. It's like, that's not how, how it happens anywhere else. No. no mammal that doesn't work for any mammal. Yeah. Yeah. And so it is. And, and that's the thing is like, it's interesting that very well-meaning, thoughtful, compassionate, educated people, you know, and, and I, like I was one of them. I would claim to be one of them prior to. It's like you don't, we don't see those things. And again, I think that's the the the, the brilliant, unfortunately brilliant work of, of, of carnism is like teaching us that these are products, that this is normal, that just this is how the system is. And mm-hmm. you go to the grocery store and you buy your milk and eggs and cheese and then like, whatever else you might need. But those are like the staple groceries. Yeah. Like that's what we've been taught. What's that documentary? I want to say it's What the Health, where they dive into like 
the marketing industry, the dairy industry, the pharmaceutical industry, they're all like working together, mm -hmm. putting oh, money yeah. in each other's pockets. Yeah. It was like the Got Milk campaign. Like all the top athletes had the milk mustache. Yeah. Just marketing at its finest. Like I thought I needed milk for strong bones. Totally. Oh, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. I drank a cup every morning. And, yeah, yeah. You know. You want to be strong. I want to be healthy. Yeah. yeah. Michael Jordan was doing that. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, if MJ is doing it. Yeah. yeah. Wheaties and cereal and milk in the cereal. Everything. It's just like it's gross. But yeah, it's all just to get more profit. Yeah. Let's market this. Let alone like broccoli. Broccoli has really great calcium. Yeah. Who knew? Right? It's like broccoli farmers don't have the same uh, lobby group. No, there's no. Yeah. 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 But I, I, I might be wrong about this, but I heard something about like the reason dairy is so popular. I think it was World War One when they had like a surplus of powdered milk to send over for rations. Yes. And the government was like, what do we do with all this? Well, let's fucking blast it, put money into the dairy industry. And yes, it's crazy. You know, we see all these like ripple. We talked about the positive ripples. So war being a negative ripple, like dairy being like a negative rip, one of the many negative ripples of, of war, you yeah. know, like. Which you never would have thought. Yes. It's so weird, yeah. you know, but. Yeah. It's a trap. So touching back on, on we talked about Lambeck and indigenous sovereignty. Um, so you come from a, a Métis background. Um, is that, were you raised learning traditions from that, from, from your ancestral community or is that something you kind of learned more about as you got older? Yeah, it's definitely something I learned more about as I got older. Um, I lived in the Okanagan. I went to an indigenous like preschool, Senpapchin. I went to Takalnuit Elementary School that has a big indigenous um, community. Um, and I was on the indigenous list, so I was like supposed to be learning, you know, Okanagan language and going to the powwows, but I would, because I'm... I, I look so white that I just was able to get by without going. So no one really knew I was uh, Métis. And there wasn't really many Métis people in the Okanagan. Like most, my, my family's from Duck Lake and then obviously ties back to Red River. Um, Métis people in BC are kind of like spread all over the place, right? Um, and also, you know, my family didn't really want to talk about it. My grandpa went to residential school in Saskatchewan in Duck Lake. Um didn't really talk much about it. Was called a half breed when he was a kid. Very a lot of trauma there, um, which is passed down to my father. He didn't really go and talk about it. So no one really talked about it. it. Wasn't until my grandpa passed away a few years back where people started like diving into it, and like our, so me and my sisters, we didn't really. My dad's last name is Bremner, and we didn't really use that name because we didn't grow up with him. We didn't really want to be associated with it. And then come to find out, Bremner is like a prominent family in the Métis community. There's a Métis settlement called uh, Brissailer, which is named after the Bremners, the Taylors, and the Sailors. Those three mm. families got together and built this, created a settlement. Still, It's still there. There's a museum there. Um, and I, you know, I have three ancestors who fought in battles of Duck Lake, Fish Creek, and the Battle of Batoche alongside Louis Riel. Wow. And I, you know, I went to back to Batash days this year, and you see my family names there, and I, there's so much history of my family that I kind of like discounted, that I didn't know about because I just wasn't really associated with my dad, and so now I'm definitely learning more about my family, my family lineage, um, and I'm very much more connected to the Métis community in Vancouver and the filmmaker community. There's a ton of Métis filmmakers and artists that are kind of creating really great stuff. Um, yeah, so just kind of rediscovering as a lot of people are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important. Like it's uh, 
it's really interesting for, for anyone to like uh, discover your story, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, we were talking a little bit about it even before we got on, but like how s- for some people, regardless of, of what it is, there's there's like almost a hesitance or like a reluctance to go and find out what that is. But I think particularly it feels like the tide is starting to shift in the positive direction, at least in, in Canada, uh, towards our indigenous communities. And I mean, obviously a couple of years ago with, with the discovery, uh, of, of the unmarked graves in, uh, Kamloops at the residential school there, like mm-hmm. the, the conversation is that needed to be happening for years and years and years is beginning to happen. And I think that, uh, in some ways like that helps, maybe or has helped people like yourself and you can speak to this obviously Cody uh embrace that part of who you are it's like collectively people are starting to say like oh man like this is an important conversation where we need to like recognize what has happened because the Canada that I grew up in was like multicultural and we're so much better than the states where it's like racist and bad and slavery (laughs) and it was like this smokescreen of this cultural genocide or genocide that yeah. was committed here yeah and i think that now there's this like collective awakening to stories that indigenous communities i heard one elder say like we've all we've always known yeah we've always known but now people are starting to see and yeah. believe us and it's like holy shit like that's so important yeah and like i think that in some ways those heavy events and truths that need to be told can can help people like connect to their lineage and I, I don't know if that's true for you part of your story if it's just like you know timing that you start to lean into it but but what do you what do you think on that like obviously it was huge national news for, for yeah. our people um for me it's always been something where like I kind of start leaning into it like since I was a kid leaning into it and then pulling away again um one because of how I look and how how I didn't grow up with my dad's side of the family um so I always felt like I was just taking up space that I didn't belong in. Mm. Um, and everybody wants to feel oppressed. And especially when COVID hit and the George Floyd thing, there was all these people coming forward was like, oh, this is happening to me, this is happening to me. Everyone wanted to feel, everyone wants to feel oppressed. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I didn't want it to seem like, I was like, oh, just claiming the indigenous card because like I, you know, I'm not a bad cis white male. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I was always like, I don't want to feel like I'm just, claiming indigeneity, especially when it's something I'm rediscovering for myself. So I'm always very careful of the space I take up. Um, and even my indigenous friends and colleagues, they're always wanting me to take up more space than I'm comfortable with. But it also has helped me work through the generational trauma that is very apparent in my family, which is a real experience that comes from, you know, the indigeneity that my family has. Um, so I don't know. It's this weird dance for me where I'm like, I don't want to take up the space, but I'm also trying to figure it out for myself. And in the the thing for me, the best way that I've found is that in helping support my indigenous friends and indigenous colleagues with what they're doing, I love being an advocate and also creating a, helping create a platform for them. Then I feel like I'm assisting without taking up space. That, and I think there's a lot of just like imposter syndrome still as well. Of course. Um, But I don't know. It's just that weird, weird dance. Yeah. (laughs) That makes sense. As like a Caucasian person that's benefited from colonialism, like I just want to encourage you to take up more space because I don't think you're taking up space from other indigenous people. You're, you're, you could be taking up space from 
other white folks that have have benefited from you know colonial privilege so right well the thing is like i benefit as a white man like when people look at me i mean i have had people think that i'm like greek or middle eastern or whatever like there is something going on there but yeah generally people look at me as i'm white so my lived experience has been white so i like it's hard for me to right like i still benefit from white privilege yes um however the generational trauma is still very apparent in my family you know what i mean yeah so it's one of those weird things i'm still trying to navigate what the space is but i think that's that's maybe part of it and i mean to to, to echo zach too like i think that um similarly to how you went through this journey towards sobriety and sharing about it and whether it's in a podcast format like this or just with the people that you're closest to our stories are the things that like connect us to each other and, and help us recognize the humanity within each other or the similarities. And, you know, I think that it's important because there's probably a lot of people who would feel similar to you. Right. Oh yeah. A lot. And and say, well, it's not my place to stand up and say anything because you know, I I didn't have like, we we can really quickly look and compare traumas and say, well, mine's not as bad as that. So it's not really my place to stand up. Right. But then at the same time, like when we do stand up and say, Hey, this is what happened and, and you know, speak, speak the truth and say, this is how it affected my family. And like, yes, I recognize that, you know, I've had it easier maybe in, in some regards, but like those stories are so important because it, it collectively raises people's healing. And I think right. that, that, you know, as much as you feel comfortable and appropriate, like that is a space that definitely I think you should continue to step into and because people will follow suit. Yeah. And that's like, we always talk about like the positive trail or like, you know, a boat goes, and there's like the wake. And we always think about like our actions leave this positive trail that we might not even see the effect that it has somewhere like down the line. What, what, sure is that ripple going to like wash right. up on and so that's true yeah someone who who has you know a, a profile and a platform um people look to you right and i think yeah. that it's important not 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 in like a putting pressure on but just so you're aware like i think it's important it's important to yeah. to share those stories and, and to step into that for sure and my sisters are the same like my my they're we have we share the same dad different moms um so they're you know, they share the Métis ancestry and both of them in recent years, they, they run the Aboriginal program, still called the Aboriginal program. I don't know why it's not indigenous, but they run that program in their schools, one in Penticton, one in Lake country. Um, so they're also, you know, on their own journey of really creating the safe space for all indigenous students. They're planning all these, these powwows and these, um, indigenous ceremonies for their students. Um, and one of them started working with moose, moose hide. Do you know this campaign? It's, a uh, can't remember who started by, but it's a it's a movement to shed light on the murder murdered and missing Indigenous women. Um, they have these moose hide pins oh, that they, they, yeah yeah. You'll see them. A lot of people have them. Like I've, you see politicians wearing them sometimes, yeah. and um, it's it's slowly building. More people are recognizing it, but they're also doing this big educational sector um, where they're informing students about different things. So you know, my sisters are on their journey as well, like figuring that out and giving back and. I'm just on, I'm figuring out my, <laughs> my uh, niche as well. Of course. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's your journey for you to, <clears throat> yeah. to discover and explore. But um, I, I mean, I have friends who are like blonde hair, blue eyed that grew up on the res. You know what I mean? There's so many white course. natives and that is a story. This is a very, it is a common story. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, um, it's challenging to navigate. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a different experience if you're white facing versus not white facing, but I don't think it discredits how you feel or experience what's happening in the world, you know? Right. Like, right. Um, if there's racism towards indigenous people or Metis people, I'm I'm assuming you would experience it in a the same way as any other indigenous or Metis person. Well people will say racist shit about natives in front of me thinking that I'm you know, white. Yes. And I'll catch that. Like I was, I bartend. I was at the bar the other day, and some some guys were. I can't even remember what they're saying saying now, but they were just making all these jokes on natives, and I was just like, because they thought they thought I was white. They were like, yeah. "Oh, you're in on this joke. There's no yes. one native around here. We can say it." You know? Yes. Yeah. It's pretty fucked up. It's yeah. Fucked so up. I, I definitely feel that. Like I, I, you know, that that definitely does hurt. Um, not so like for for my family. You know, what I mean, it hurts for my family and for you know my indigenous friends and you know yeah community but i think that it goes it goes to show that like those those sentiments are like not so far below the surface like all it takes yeah. is, is a room where like it, you you might perceive that it's uh it's an okay space to like make some sort of joke like that yeah and that like that would still be someone's reality it's like oh it'd be okay here because there's no visible minority right. or someone that I could offend or whatever. Right. And it's like, it's not, that it's not okay. Like yeah. <laughs> cultural homogeneity doesn't make it okay to like then. Right. Exactly. You know, make those and then jokes. when someone says that it's usually like one person or two people that will kind of laugh or agree. And I, I feel like the majority of people are actually usually uncomfortable about it, but they don't speak up about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So then you hear two people laughing about it and then it feels like that's how everyone. Yeah. That's how you should respond. Yeah. yeah. It's more outward. Yeah. Where the majority of people, I, I would totally agree are kind of like on the inside, like cringing me like, yeah. Oh, did you just say that? Yeah. 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 So is, is any of your ancestry starting to inspire uh, any of your creative outputs um, in, in terms of directing, writing, acting? Well, I've been fortunate to be acting in a few Métis series recently. Um, I was in this, um, guy I went to high school with actually he was a few years above me his name is Jordan Wanch he's a Métis filmmaker in Vancouver he just created this series called Shadow of the Ruguru okay. um, which is a Métis horror um, miniseries that blends indigenous mythology so it has the Ruguru which is like this Métis werewolf um, and it goes into the history of, of Louis Rail. so it starts off with this woman goes back to her her home, her her um, her home to get troops from Louis Riel to battle for the Battle of Batash, and she comes across this Rougarou, this curse that's on her family of this werewolf, and just like battle it, right? Uh -huh. um, and it's going to expand into the actual history of Louis Riel and much more indigenous mythologies. So I was lucky to be a part of that. I acted in that, and then I did a short film um, written and directed by Jay Cardinal, another Métis filmmaker, um, about Louis Riel and the Battle of Batash, where I played Louis Riel. Which was no really way. dope. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've been fortunate to be a part of that community where I've been acting in some in some things, and then I'm also working on developing uh, a Métis series about Red River Colony. Very cool. Um, and I actually can trace my my first relative. His name was Alexander Bremner. He came over with you, do you know the Selkirk Selkirk settlers. Yeah, so he came over with the Selkirk settlers and settled in Red River and married a Cree woman. Um, so I'm trying to figure out a way to actually write their my you oh. know grandfather and grandmothers great 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 um their stories into the series that's such that's a cool. cool part about arts and um you know the creative pursuits like um i feel like there's opportunity to to relearn retell re-educate re-experience like mm -hmm. the history of of your people yeah and um you know 
all of us can benefit from that because I feel like the Canada that we learned about in high school is right. far from the truth. <laughs> right. So, yeah. um, you know, creative people like yourself being able to retell these stories from a more authentic um, history is, yeah. is, is, gives all people that are inhabiting space in Canada yeah. an, an ability to, to learn about yeah. the history of this, this land. For sure. And I want, I want to give it, I want it to give compassion to the settlers as well, because the Selkirk settlers at the time, they were displaced from their homes in Scotland. Right. Because the people in power realized that they can make more money from sheep herding than they could from people paying their rent. Mm-hmm. So they cleared out everyone, made room for sheep. And there's all these like houseless Scot- Scottish people. Mm-hmm. So they were the people that, you know, Selkirk and the people in power were like, hey, how about you guys come over for us? They hired, they mm-hmm. basically said, hey, you guys can have this land, bring them over there. And they said, they'll set you up there. Yes. So they came over looking for a better home as well, not realizing that the land they're about to take was other people's, you know? So I, I really wanted to make it where like <laughs> the government is the, the, the corporations, the, um, the colonial construct, the, the governments, they're, they're the, the bad guys, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know? Um, it wasn't the people looking for a new home. It wasn't the people that were already living here. It was, I mean, granted, there obviously there was racism. People they, they were being told that they were better when they come over. There is obviously racism in taking place, um, but I do want to approach it from compassion from both sides. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of tell a more accurate history mm-hmm. rather than a biased Canadian history. Yeah, right. Because it is. It, it's. I think you're absolutely right. It's like far more nuanced than than what we might think of in terms of, of bad, just bad and, bad good. and good. Yeah. yeah. But to say like, you know, quite honestly, and people ask like, Oh, why does, why does the government have to be involved in, in, uh, you know, these conversations about land back and can't we just move on and stuff like that. And it's like, no, because it was orchestrated. Like yeah. it was orchestrated the, the theft of this land in these kind of manipulative ways. Like, yeah. Hey, come over here. We'll take care of you. We got land for you. Right you know, the equivalent of like 40 acres and a mule kind of things. Like you clear the land and it's yours to keep. Right. And it, there was never a question of who was already there. And this idea of ownership, which was a colonial idea yeah. that you're going to, we're going to draw these invisible lines and that land in, inside those lines belongs to you now. Yeah. And people believed it and yeah. they went through and they followed through and, and it was not because they were these bad, evil people, mm-hmm. but they were looking for a start and the government said, Hey, this is yours. And so they, they bought into it and then took the land from people who had historically used it for thousands and thousands yeah. and thousands of years. And so it's complicated and yeah, and that'd be a very, very interesting story to tell. Yeah. Wow. I was talking to a friend recently who works in city planning and she's talking about all these zoning laws that have been in place since like the 1800s. Yeah. Um, and it, the way that cities plan is just doesn't work today, but we're still following the same rules back in the day. And one of the examples was in Red River, Métis would have these long uh, plots of land. So everyone had riverfront because river was such a, so important for their livelihood. Yeah. So they have these long stretches of land, make sure everyone had waterfront. And then the, you know, the um, Europeans came over and they started gridding it off like squares, like how it is now and just completely decimating what was already there. These Métis people that were off, you know, um, they'd be off for a few months voyaging. They'd come back and their land was just like all diced up. What the hell's going on? Yeah. 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 That was wild. I won't be able to tell all those kind of things. Those, yeah. you 
And the expansion of like, uh, you know, at our most cynical, we could say the expansion of, of the Canadian territory, right? In mm-hmm. terms of like the government moving west and that the railroad was a big piece of that as well as the desire to create, you know, Johnny McDonald had the desire to create a national police force. And so if you send people out and give them land, knowing that there were people there who that land already belongs to, mm-hmm. there's probably going to be conflict. And guess who's going to come in and solve that conflict? Oh, we need some more police. And so it's really, I mean, at our most cynical, you can see how it was like kind of this movement towards mm-hmm. establishing all of these pieces that needed to be in place for this kind of like dominance over the land. Mm-hmm. And that's not a story that's often told yeah. in great you know social studies. Do you know how the RCMP was first formed or why it was? Tell us. I don't, okay, I'm going to butcher the story. There's much more details. You have to look this up to find all the specific details. But essentially it was... And I, I can't remember which nation it was of indigenous people, but there was a bunch of American um, hunters that came because they had like hunted all the wolves out in America. They destroyed everything. So they were coming up to Canada to hunt wolves up here. Um, so this specific expedition of American hunters, they came up and there was a, they, one of their men got killed by an indigenous nation. And in return, they killed like dozens of them. And then they went to the government was like, you have wild lands up here. One of our guys got killed. How dare you? Blah, 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 blah. So the government created the RCMP to like originally start protecting the American hunters that were coming up from the indigenous people so that they could hunt and do whatever they wanted up here without consequence. Oh, There's man. more details to that story. You have to look it up. Yeah. I'm going to refresh myself, but it's, it's, it wow. was essentially to protect white people to hunt. It wasn't, it was, it wasn't for, you know, or everyone's protection. No, I believe <laughs> to serve, that. To serve and protect. Well, the yeah. same kind of thing with America. Like the police force was started for like runaway slaves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 These systems of oppression. Yeah. I was watching just while I was listening to you. I was thinking about this doc that I watched. I think on Disney Plus recently. I'm blanking on the name, but it's um, an ongoing fight in the Amazon with the indigenous people that still live in their indigenous land in the Amazon, and the deforestation and. I think we, as we kind of can other a lot of these problems, but it was similar to what you were saying about the, the Scottish people. Like it's in the Amazon, what they were showing is these people of extreme poverty that really have nothing, no money, no means to feed themselves. And they're being pushed up towards the Amazon and being told, you know, if you cut down some trees, that's your land. You mm. do what you want with it. So it's these poor, desperate people that are at battle with these indigenous people that have been in the Amazon since the beginning of creation and the government's just being like staying out of it right because it benefits them they're just like puppeteers creating chaos amongst yes and you can kind of see this this age-old tale of colonization of colonial power that happened in Canada and is still happening um, playing out currently in Amazon in the Amazon and other regions of the world and it's it's heartbreaking, you know? It is heartbreaking. Yeah. So crazy. I was just for a profit. Like, you really care about money that much. And you already have enough money. You know what I mean? You don't yes. need more. Yeah. And you're really putting people's lives and livelihoods at risk. When is enough enough, you when know? When is enough enough? Yeah. Cool. Well, I mean, not cool. <laughs> Very uncool. Very uncool, yeah. Um, well, Cody, I think this is a good place to park this conversation. I feel like... Um, well, I feel grateful for you sharing uh, your your journey through all of these chapters of, of sobriety, veganism, you know, discovering your own ancestry. 
Uh, we didn't get too much into your fitness, but, uh, you know, people will see your picture and we'll be able to see that, you know, you're a big, strong, <laughs> big, strong guy that obviously that plays a part into your daily rituals. Um, Dean, is there anything you want to bring can up? I, can I say something about that really quickly? Yeah, yeah, of course. I actually, I, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to work out extra hard right now. I want to get in the best shape of my life. Yes. One of the reasons is like, even the other day, someone was like, how are you in shape? You're vegan. You know what I mean? So I, yes. I, I, I want to be even the best shape as I possibly can just kind of as a fuck you to those people and just yeah. like show like like i gained muscle way quicker ever since i went plant-based i don't know if you guys found this yeah it just it you feel so much better you gain you, the gains happen quicker yeah. i i was working out a couple of weeks ago at the gym and talking to this person she's like oh that's so cool let's listen to your podcast and uh saw saw an episode we did with um a guy his name is simon hill He's like a vegan mm-hmm. dude from Australia and is like fit and all this oh, stuff. I think I know. I think I know who that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's amazing. And she's like, that's so cool. And then she's like, but you're not vegan. I was like, <laughs> yeah. And she's like, what? As I'm like deadlifting, right? Like, and, why are you not frail? And yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's like, but you're so like big. I was yeah. like, I know. Right. It's like amazing. I was like, have you seen a cow? Have you yeah. seen like an elephant? Like also big, all like the biggest animals strong. in the world are herbivores. Yeah, yeah. But it is, it's cool. I always have it in the back of my mind too, when, you know, adding an extra plate on and like doing yeah. it and then just people being like, man, what do you fuel with? And I'm like, yeah, plants. Yeah. I'm like what? It's just it's kind of, it's, feeling. it is. And it's uh, you know what you think it, it's the v- veganism is not new, but it's still emerging in kind of like, especially in the fitness space where it's like, wow, you need animal protein Mm. to like build muscle and to be able to kind of be like an ambassador for this lifestyle. And, and it's, you don't have to sacrifice performance or strength or anything like that. It's like, it kind of gives people pause in a new way. If it's not compassion for animals or environment and they can say, Oh, well I can still be fit and like have this. Yeah. Do do you find your recovery has changed too? That's one of the biggest differences for myself. I find I'm not that sore. I've been a vegan for so long. I'd actually don't remember what my recovery was before. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't, yeah, I I wouldn't say I have a, a long recovery period. I can work out like six days a week. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, that says your recovery is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel I just feel good. And yeah. but like I said, I I just started lifting heavier when I went plant based. Yeah, and my gains happened quicker. Like I got stronger faster. I, just, I think it's just like it bogs you down. All that animal product just like you know destroys your energy. Yeah, yeah. I think it's. I'm sold. I mean, yeah. <laughs> how long have you guys been vegan? Like five years. Five years. Yeah. I've been probably 10 or 11 oh, wow. years. Okay. Yeah, I went uh, during university. I went, took a bunch of animal environmental ethics classes kind of by accident mm. and went pescatarian for a while first. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I like disassociated. Like I think everyone does. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. fish are the farthest away from us. Yes. Yeah. And then eventually uh, when we started the juice track, I kind of rewatched the documentaries or watch new ones and i was like oh why am i eating fish and yeah. having eggs like yeah one of the funniest sayings i'm sure you guys have heard it but it's it's like people will not use plastic straws to save the fish but they won't <laughs> stop eating fish to yeah. save the fish yeah. oh my god yeah. we Sorry. hunt like what trillions of them a year yeah and the amount of plastic that uh, we had um ellie tabrizi on the director of c spirit and he was talking about mm, like cool. um plastic straws are like point zero 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 one percent of the plastic in the ocean and right it's like and that's the biggest movement of that's it? the biggest movement like fish nets that are made out of plastic right. are actually the biggest plastic really in the in the ocean and and no one's like i wonder if it's the fishing industry that pushed the plastic straw movement to distract us from the thing you know probably i mean yeah. 
that's one thing we've learned is that industry's got power and like yeah. uh, oh man yeah and we don't have to go too far into it but we learned um through another past guest grace nosek uh, when we we're talking about um you know the oil industry that uh recycling the whole recycling program was created by you know the gas and oil industry just to kind of like distract us and empower us to do something small mm-hmm. to distract from the bigger picture so i think there's a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of yeah you know manipulation at play from the powers that be yeah yeah <laughs> but yet there's still hope right vegans can still deadlift it also is like the fastest growing movement like every year like how many people become vegan for yeah. sure i mean you can see it in the grocery aisles right like, yeah uh, yeah you know 10 years ago there was a couple like hippie brands that weren't that tasty no horrible and now you can, you can get, get everything you want. Even the cheese now. Have you guys had Blue Heron cheese? So yes. good. Yes. Shout out to Blue Heron. It's nuts. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. There's so many people that like have Dean's tried. <laughs> What's that? Dean said it's nuts. And I was like, it oh. is nuts. <laughs> um, there's so many people that tried a vegan meal like 10 years ago. And they're like, no, I hate all vegan food. Yeah. And it's why I'm always particular. So I went, I took my roommates out for, or they took me, it was my birthday a little bit ago, and they took me out to Nightshade. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I got to pick a really good vegan restaurant, because so, if they have one vegan meal that tastes bad, they're going to think <laughs> all vegan food is yeah. bad. Yeah. Got to make sure a good first impression. Yeah. Nightshade is a good spot, it's for great, sure. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, um, we always close our episode with uh, with this one question, and so I'll pose it to you. We Zach and I started this uh, podcast, and we called it a little more good because that's mm-hmm. like we wanted to do and create and be about in the world. And we love to hear from from each guest that we have on. Like, what is that phrase? A little more good. What does that mean to you? A little more good. I think it's, it's to me. It's just every day trying a little to spread a little bit more light, a little bit more goodness into the world. Like you don't have to make these grand leaps every day, but if you can do a little bit, those things add up and in the long term things, then you will make great change. Beautiful. That's awesome, man. Well, thank you so much, Cody. I'm I'm very excited to continue to follow your journey, mm-hmm. to, to see where your creative pursuits take you. Um, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of exciting things that uh, await you and I'm equally as excited to, to see what comes of it. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. You got it. All right, there you have it. Solid, solid human being. Yeah, Cody, curiously. I'm a fan. I definitely uh, gonna be on the sidelines cheering him on through all of his projects, whether in acting, writing, directing. Just an overall awesome human being. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's so cool. It's always, it's always um, such a gift to be able to sit down with people and like hear their story and and find you know those through lines of like who they are from from childhood into adulthood and and see their journey kind of unfold over the course of a conversation and just how they've come to be the person they are and so always grateful to hear stories to share stories and to know that um our stories are ultimately you know all that we are and we can impact one another with them so hopefully uh something about cody's story and his journey impacted you inspired you to take a risk to step out to try something new to step into a place of experimenting with sobriety if that's something that you know is important to you um so many takeaways that could be leveraged from from his story so thank you for sharing cody with us and uh, if you liked it share this episode with a friend let them know 
what uh, inspired you about the conversation and, and uh, invite them to, to be inspired as well. So as always, uh, thank you. Thank you for tuning in, friends. All right. Look forward to tuning in with all of you again. Same, same time, same place next week. Stay good, y'all. Bye. Thank you.